Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I was interviewing one person in a Kentucky Fried Chicken in the city. We were being watched. There were people close by uh, from the government and they actually came over and approached us. So under those circumstances, it's really difficult to drill down and get people to be frank about what's going on. Bloomberg reporter Colin Murphy recently traveled to Hugong. It's a remote coal town in northeastern China that found itself under a mountain of debt and was forced to undergo an unprecedented financial restructuring. The fiscal squeeze has made life for many there even harder. And Hugong is not alone. Other heavily indebted cities in China may soon follow. And that threatens to become a drag on the world's second largest economy for years to come. It could also have wider repercussions beyond China's borders. Here's Bloomberg's James Mager. If you're a commodity exporting country like Brazil or Australia, or if you're a Southeast Asian nation that's looking to move up the value chain by selling manufactured goods to China, if Chinese people are buying less of those goods, that's less income for you. So there's less growth for the whole world, basically. So the first way that transmits through is to slower growth globally. I'm Wes Kosova. Today on The Big Take, Colum and James join me from Beijing to explain why the financial struggles of one town point to larger troubles for China. Hargang is a small city by Chinese standards. It has a population of about one million there, give or take. And it's located in the very northeast corner of China in a province called Heilongjiang, which is one of the coldest corners of the country. The town itself is a stone's throw away from the Russian border, and it's known for its history of coal mining. It's a coal town. And at one point in its history, it was quite prosperous as a result of this industry. But over the years, that industry has been in decline and the revenues coming from coal have also been on the way down. The population has been declining over the past decade. The city is looking for ways to try to find new sources of economic growth. What it's looking to these days is more like graphite, which is a material that's used extensively in things, for example, like electric vehicles. And it's also trying to tap tourism but its location in, in a very remote cold part of China doesn't really make it an all-year-round tourist destination, so that's quite a challenge. Another thing that Hegang is famous for more recently is that unlike developed cities in China, such as Beijing and Shanghai, the property prices in Hegang are actually very, very cheap. So cheap that they have begun to attract people from outside. So these are young people who basically feel overstressed or unable to achieve the so-called China dream in the terms of buying their own apartment. And they're looking to move to places like Hegang, where they can pick up a fairly decent apartment for almost next to nothing. This debt issue facing a place like Hegang is something that the Chinese government and the local governments are certainly not proud of and not something that they want to broadcast to the world. 
For example, when we turned up to Hagang after flying from Beijing, basically we were greeted by local officials, a combination of propaganda officials and also security officials. I should say we did not tell them we were going there, but nonetheless, they knew that we were coming and they were determined to do everything they could to influence or at least hinder our reporting. So it was quite difficult to do simple things like Vox Pop. But when we did manage to eventually speak to some of the local people, what we found was a sort of obviously a caution about talking about this. And beneath the surface of sort of normality, uh, there definitely was concerns being expressed by all sorts of people that we interviewed. So, for example, street cleaners had experienced delays to their salaries of up to two months. One hospital worker that we spoke to had her contract, which was directly with the hospital, unilaterally changed. And now she ends up working for a third party company on, on a salary that's not as optimal or as good as it was before. We used to get 10 yuan extra for working on public holidays, such as the New Year's Day. Now, since we're employed by the property management company, we get nothing. Of course, I'm upset about the situation. How can I feel good about this? Taxi drivers were complaining about more fines as the government tries to find new ways to increase their revenue. And uh, teachers were worried about job cuts. So I would say on the surface, it looked like a normal sort of uh, small city in the remote corner of China. But when we talked to people and, and dug down a little bit, it was clear that people were at least concerned about how life in the city is getting harder and economically more difficult for them. James, as Calm describes, the financial and economic situation is pretty stressed and they had to undergo unprecedented financial restructuring. Can you describe exactly why that happened and where things are now? So the city you know, is faced with a number of economic problems. Some of that, as Colm described, there are many old coal towns around the world in the US and UK and, and Europe and other places where the coal has dried up and there's no jobs anymore. And I think uh, people can imagine what that's like. And it's the same in China. So you're seeing in Hergang, the population fell by about 16% between 2010 and 2020. The population of the broader province of Heilongjiang has also fell about that same amount. So the whole province of Heilongjiang lost about six and a half million people in that 10 year period, which is more than the population of most US states. That's people dying or moving to warmer climates further south where there are better jobs. So you're seeing an erosion of jobs. You're seeing an erosion of the tax base because there are less people to pay taxes. There are fewer businesses as, as coal mines closed down. And so the economy of the city of Hergang itself peaked in 2012. It never achieved that level that it reached in 2012 again until 2022. And that was only because of the big spike in coal prices that we saw last year because of the, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. So you're looking at a city that has a, a falling population, a stagnating economy, but the debt levels of the city have been rising rapidly over this time as the local government has tried to spend its way out of these economic problems. We don't have full data, but it seems like the official debt of the government does more than increase fivefold between 2015 and 2022. So the government is facing this massive debt burden but its population is shrinking, its tax base is shrinking, and it's struggling to pay for the services it's meant to provide and also to pay for the, you know, the interest payments and the repayments of the debt that it owes. And James, this is a problem, obviously, for the people who live in this city in China, but it's also a problem for China more broadly, as you write. Can you explain why that is? 
So the fiscal restructuring in Hergang is a problem for the local economy. For example, local banks in Heilongjiang that have lent money to the city or have bought the bonds that the city has sold from the local government financing vehicles to pay for various different kinds of projects and things that the city is doing. The bigger problem for the province and for China is that this is not an isolated case. This is not just one city which is in this situation. There are many cities that are in a similar situation to Hogang. Maybe they're not quite as extreme. The situation is not quite as bad as it is in this place. But as I said, the population of Heilongjiang shrank by 6.5 million people in 10 years. There are many other cities in the Northeast that are facing this similar problem of a shrinking population, decreasing number of jobs. There are many, many coal towns and steel towns across the Northeast. You know, it's China's rust belt. And those industries are stagnating and, and going away. So one problem that these growing debt problems that are popping up in places around China, in, in Heilongjiang, as we've, we saw in Hukong, in Guizhou, in the south of the country as well, which is also facing an unsustainable debt situation, is that it makes it much, much harder for the government in Beijing to achieve what it set out as its economic and financial goals for the next few years. President Xi Jinping has set a goal of doubling the size of the economy by 2035. They also have another goal of what they call common prosperity, which in a Western sense is basically just increasing income equality. So instead of having very rich provinces like Shanghai or Guangdong, and then very poor provinces like Heilongjiang or Guizhou, the government wants to equalize income across the country. The problem is that a lot of these impoverished places are also very heavily indebted, as we saw in Hukong. And someone has to deal with those debt problems which are, which are holding the economy back. If, if those debt problems become harder and harder and larger and larger to deal with, that's going to affect growth in those regional economies or provincial economies. And that's going to make it much, much harder for the central government to achieve both the doubling of the size of the economy, but also harder to achieve this income equality that they're aiming for. Callum, James had talked about common prosperity, this goal of China. How is common prosperity defined? Definitions here tend to be fluid at the best and implementation of these policies not very obvious at times. But I think what basically underlines or lies underneath this common prosperity push is the belief by the President Xi Jinping that there were inequalities in the economy. So on the one hand, we had these entrepreneurs and uh, business people from the private sector who were making a fortune, the cities Beijing, Shanghai, lifestyle was through the roof. People were expending excessively on the education of their children, both during the school day, but also in the after hours, sending them to extra tuition classes, very, very costly, all in order to get them and give them a step up in the China society for when they graduate, go to university. So it was emerging, inequalities were becoming quite visible. And that obviously goes against what the party would hope to stand for in terms of a more equal society. So it was a step by C to try to address that. And of course, we saw that play out in a couple of ways. There was the crackdown on tech, the after hour schooling, industry was basically shut down. All of these were kind of negative steps to maybe dial back a little bit some of the excesses. And then in parallel, it goes hand in hand maybe with his strategy of poverty alleviation, whereby the government is trying outreach to these poorer communities around the country, especially rural ones, and introducing plans and programs that are designed to increase their ability to participate in the modern Chinese economy. So it's kind of like a combination of dialing back the excesses of the rich while giving the poor a helping hand with the aim of narrowing that gap in terms of income equality. 
When you spoke to people in Hugang, what do they say about this goal of common prosperity, about Xi's promise for everyone to kind of share in the wealth? You'll find here that there's a lot of slogans that take place at the macro level, and you'll see Xi talking about this, and you'll see the party issuing statements about this. But actually, when you talk to people on the street, they're not going to come and say, oh, I'm very excited about Xi's common prosperity. Basically, they're more focused on their day-to-day. What is it that the government is doing to help them or to assist them in making money, but also you know, their education and job opportunities for their children going forward? So on that note, you know, we did talk to people who were trying to operate small businesses, and there's a sense that the government is looking for uh, more stringently applying restrictions charging fees and fines, things that are actually, in a way, impeding their ability to do business. So that's one of the more practical implications on the ground. But another thing that was quite surprising, and again, we need to be mindful that these interviews are sometimes conducted in less than optimal situations. For example, I was interviewing one person in a Kentucky Fried Chicken in the city, and there was obviously, we were being watched. There were people close by uh, from the government, and they actually came over and approached us. So under those circumstances, it's really difficult to drill down and get people to be frank about what's going on. So some of the answers we get are sometimes we have to take them with a pinch of salt. One of the arguments people were saying was like, okay, so maybe we're not as economically progressive or developed as other parts of China, but our quality of life, our pace of life is better here is slower here. So it's this sort of like explain in a very generous way what the economy and the government actions, how they're playing out. But of course, no matter how generous their take is on their situation, the reality is that if we accumulate and add all of these situations up nationally, that is not going to help Xi or China achieve their goal. After the break, China's president has a political stake in getting this problem under control. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. James, we see income inequality all over the world, of course. How big of a problem is it in China? The income inequality in China is stark. The data we have on 
showing that is not as good as the data you might see in the US or in other places, but Beijing's tier one cities like Beijing and Shanghai are the same living standards as developed nations in the West. There's no difference in the quality of services, the income levels, the cost of living in these places is basically unchanged from Australia or the US or, or Europe. And then you have very, very poor places in other parts of the country, which are which are very underdeveloped. And, and the, so the income equality across regions is stuck. And then within cities, you also have incredible gaps between the rich and the poor. And this this is a real problem. And, it's, and this has been growing as China has grown. And you see these people like Jack Ma from Alibaba and other incredibly wealthy people. And the government looks at that and they say, these people are very wealthy. There are a lot of other people who are not wealthy, who are poor, who are struggling, who can't afford to buy apartments in the cities where they live. We need to do something about this. And so the common prosperity is a sort of overarching slogan of the government that really is kind of similar to a lot of the stuff you see in other countries where politicians are trying to say the cost of living is too high, inflation is too high. We need to do something to provide housing and these things that our people want. And I think the interesting thing here is is that this kind of shows the difficulty the central government actually has in forcing the rest of the country to do things that they want. I mean, people think of China as this authoritarian state where Xi Jinping can do anything he wants. And that's certainly true in some situations. If he wants to do a specific thing, he can totally make everyone do that. But he can't do that all the time about everything. And so you're seeing this, for example, the government wants to crack down on hidden debt and make sure that cities and provinces aren't hiding debt off the balance sheets, but keeping it on the balance sheets. And all the cities and provinces, places like Hergang are saying, hey, that's a great idea for everyone else, not for me. So the central government has been trying to de-risk the economy by putting all this debt on the balance sheets. And everyone is saying, that, yeah, that's a great idea. De-risking is a great idea but not for us. We want to continue to borrow and spend so that we can develop our economy. Is the situation in Hagang an indication of what could start to happen in other cities across the country? There are probably many other places that have debt levels that are just as high. It just hasn't been announced. And there are many other places that are in similarly dire fiscal straits. It just hasn't come out yet. It hasn't been reported in the local media. The local government hasn't put out a statement about the problems that they're facing. There are places in, in around the country where the government has said, we have to stop providing X and Y services, bus services or heating, for example, in Hergang in, in the winter, the local heating company suddenly said, we're not going to provide heating for the city because we haven't been paid our, our money. So there is these little sort of things that pop up in the local media or whatever, where you see these cases. But I think the problem is that this is much more widespread than is being reported. The population declines, especially the northeast of China is seeing, are incredibly incredibly damaging to the economy, and there's no way that that's going to be reversed. These are aging societies, and the young people who would have kids are looking to move away or have already moved away because there's no jobs. How important is it to Xi's power that people have trust in him? We talked earlier about how other countries have faced similar challenges, but one thing that's important, obviously, in China is that we don't have the channels. People don't have the proper channels to express their frustrations or their desires or requirements of the government. So what happens is that frustration and dissatisfaction can, from time to time, raise up in the form of protests. And 
that can be a very big problem for the party. That's not what they want to see. They do not want social instability. So in order to make sure that that doesn't happen, the government really has to be seen to improve people's livelihoods because the original sort of contract, if you will, between the party and the people is that, and this is very, a little bit oversimplistic perhaps, but we have the power, but we, in exchange, we will take care of your livelihood. We'll give you an opportunity to be part of an economy that's growing and prosperous. So if that starts to break down, then it does create a huge stress points for the government. Now, in terms of trust, it is super important that the maintains that trust. But we've had a couple of incidents uh, in the past couple of years with Xi and his government where that trust has definitely been challenged, if not eroded. And I think one specific case would have been the COVID handling and the Shanghai lockdown in particular. That was a moment where it looked as if people really were just fed up with the top-down government approach. In the end, he survived that. It didn't really have any lasting impact on his on his credibility. But as these sort of events frequency increase over time, it is possible that this will continue to erode away at Xi's credibility. So it's super important that the government be seen to take action on this and do it in a way that is has a meaningful impact on the people's lives. Now, having said that, there's one issue here is that about the transparency of this discussion, which I begin with, is very, very low. And even up until recently, I would say, the standard reaction from the Chinese government, especially through state media, has been to sort of dismiss talk of the debt problem by saying, oh, this is Western media overblowing it. It's actually not that bad and everything's under control. It's stable. So there hasn't really been a sort of a deep reckoning with the issue. Now, I think there are indications that that's starting to change. We're starting to see more, a little bit more uh, discussion of it in the media, but definitely I don't see at this point a real sort of willingness to tackle this problem head on. And that is an issue. If the government doesn't address this quickly, then it could be that that sort of social tension will only continue to rise. When we return the possible ripple effects of China's local debt in other parts of the world. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. James, given everything that Colm has just said, 
What solutions do the Chinese government have to the problems that are now spreading across the country to other cities? A lot of these indebted places are basically looking for a handout from the central government, and the central government so far is not willing to do that. And the reason for that is if they give money to one city, if they give money to one province, that every other city and province in China is going to come to them and say, hey, you paid off Guizhou's debts, how come you won't pay off my debts? And so they're having to balance these moral hazard of they do need to solve these problems, but if they step in too early, then a lot of the problems won't be solved at the local level where the government wants them to be solved. They'll be solved at the central government level and it'll become a Beijing problem as opposed to a Guizhou problem or a Heilongjiang problem. Is there any danger that this starts to snowball in a way that affects China's standing in the global economy? The real thing you're going to see is slower growth over time. So that means Chinese people don't get as rich as fast. It makes it harder to create income equality because there's just less income. It makes it harder for the government to achieve this doubling of income. But it also means less Chinese demand for foreign goods. If you're a commodity exporting country like Brazil or Australia, or if you're a Southeast Asian nation that's looking to move up the value chain by selling manufactured goods to China, if Chinese people are buying less of those goods, that's less income for you. And so there's less growth for the whole world, basically. So the first way that transmits through is to slower growth in China. And then the second thing is, and then how that might affect China's standing is that China's been using its growing economic power, and especially it's both exporting, but it's also a huge importer. And, and it's been using that import power to increase its influence around the rest of the world. If that goes the opposite direction, you may see a, a change in how much China can influence things that are going on in Africa, for example, or things that are happening in Southeast Asia. A permanent slowdown of Chinese growth is definitely going to change China's global standing because a lot of China's global standing is based on its economic power. Callum, as someone who is covering this every day, what are you watching for next? How do you see this playing out in the months and even years to come? The way I'm looking at this is, will this be another area that poses a threat to Xi's standing, to his relationship with the Chinese people? Does it have the potential to become another major issue along the lines of, of say, for example, the handling of COVID? So from that perspective, I'll be looking to see what actions he issues through his team of close advisors and see how successful he is in facing up to the problem and implementing and devising and implementing a strategy that makes sense. Um, and also looking at the reaction. What I tend to look at quite a lot is what's happening on the ground. What are the protests that are breaking out here, even though they're micro and might be fragmented and spread all over the country? Who's taking to the streets? Who's going to social media complaining? What is the characteristics of those people's frustrations? So looking both from the macro perspective, what is she doing? But also looking at the micro level to see if we can see any evidence that this is actually playing out on the street. Because to get that evidence is quite tricky, quite challenging, given the fact that there's such a clampdown on reporting and news and social media is heavily censored. James, how do you see this unfolding? So I think the first thing to be watching for is scattered reports of other places facing fiscal difficulties. We saw the city of Hohot, which is in uh, Inner Mongolia, a report popped up about their debt problems on a local website, and then it was very quickly disappeared. Uh, you saw the same thing happen in Guizhou. A government-related think tank put out a report saying they were f struggling and couldn't pay their debts, and then that very quickly got deleted. 
those look to be basically calls for help from local governments to the central government saying, we're struggling, we need help. And they seem to be doing that via putting out a report, it gets a lot of media attention, and then it, and then it obviously gets deleted, but everyone suddenly aware, is aware of the problem. So I think we should be watching for more of those things. And I think those things are going to happen more and more as, as, as other places face these same kind of issues. James, Colm, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Vergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Federica Romaniello is our producer. Our associate producer is Zenob Siddiqui. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.